You are listening to the Kirkwood Chronicles, inspired by the ridiculousness of my childhood imagination. Season 1, Episode 10, Secrets from the Heart. Viera Sable Viera woke up nauseated and with a headache, partly because she overindulged on wine the previous night, but more so because of how she had embarrassed herself. Lex Artman was not only her roommate, but also her personal bodyguard. She had not only shown impropriety by flaunting a risque outfit while alone with the man, but she had escalated things further by kissing him. Her heart fluttered anxiously, thinking about how he had returned her kiss and wrapped his arms around her. But it had all ended abruptly when he stiffened and gave her a look that snapped her back to sobriety. She had acted so thoughtlessly towards him. Then, as a chariot atop the cream of awkwardness, she had fled from the man like a coward. I don't know the man. Sure, he's handsome, and he saved my life, she thought to herself but I've known him less than two weeks. He could have a girlfriend or a fiancé for all I know. Last night was a compromising position for both of us. She took her time taking a shower, and got dressed before she at last stepped out of her bedroom. With a calm and friendly demeanor, Lex Artman sat at the kitchen bar with breakfast ready and a mug of hot coffee. He motioned to the open seat next to him, where he had set a cup of steaming tea next to her plate of food. Perfect timing. Good morning, he said. Because of her residual feelings from last night and the lingering effect of the wine, both the sight of him and the smell of the food put a knot in her stomach. She needed to clear the air between them and get it over with. Mr. Artman, she said, straightening her posture towards him. First things first. I wanted to apologize for how I acted last night. I put us both in a compromising situation. Pardon me for interrupting, ma'am, he interjected. But I should be the one apologizing, not you. First and foremost, I am your bodyguard. How I conducted myself last night was not only unprofessional, but conflicted with my responsibilities towards you. I misunderstood our interaction by not considering your comfortability with modeling, nor the influence of drink. I would like to ask for your forgiveness. She lost her train of thought a moment, distracted by his chivalry. The fluttering sensation in her heart didn't go away, but the knot in her stomach loosened considerably. She responded, I appreciate all of that being said. You have my forgiveness, Mr. Artman. However, I too played a part, for which I will take responsibility. I am sorry for losing control of my judgment in the moment and giving you reasons to misunderstand. I too would like to ask for your forgiveness. You had it before you even woke up, Miss Sable. He smiled faintly. Thank you, she said, then joined him for breakfast. They ate together in silence. Viera noticed the way he snuck glances at her. He did not eat much as he picked at his food. Of course, she was doing the same. Her chest felt tight as his presence stirred in her feelings of excitement, embarrassment, and sadness. Feelings that she wanted to share with him, but could not think of good reasons to do so. As they finished up what they did eat, and stopped pushing around the leftovers on their plates, a buzz came from the front door and interrupted their mutual musing. The buzz came again. Lex Artman got up and walked over to the intercom and pushed the button to talk. Hello? A feminine voice responded. Oh, uh, hi. Is this the residence of Viera Sable? Viera recognized the voice immediately and leapt up from the bar stool in excitement. Who is asking? The bodyguard questioned. Elisa Verd? He turned to Viera with an inquisitive look. Someone you know? 
She covered the huge smile that broke out across her face with her hands. Yes! A few minutes later, and Viera opened the front door. The slightly younger woman stood several inches shorter than Viera, and contrasted dramatically in appearance. Rather than Viera's designer clothes, Elisa Verd wore an oversized homemade sweater, patched up cargo pants, and scuffed up leather boots. She had a worn suitcase at her side. Her strawberry blonde hair was pinned so that it fell to one side of her pretty oval face with fleshy nose and dainty lips. Thin eyebrows shot up to complement a dimpled smile, but Elisa's eyes were uniquely her own. Almost off-putting with how large and dark they were, her eyes were the most notable trait that she had inherited from her legio-kin father. The two cousins screamed in excitement and threw their arms around each other in a long-overdue greeting. As they pulled away, Elisa gawked and spread out her arms in a gesture of wonder at Viera. Oh my gosh, Via! I thought it was all Photoshop and camera tricks when I saw you in photos, but you look amazing! Viera tried to respond in jest, but choked up as she marveled at her cousin's unexpected presence. The current of emotions she felt over recent events surged suddenly inside of her as she tried to respond again. All that came out was, Oh, L, before her vision swam and the tears flowed hot and heavy. Elisa pulled her into a second hug and squeezed her tightly. I'm so, so sorry, Via. As soon as I heard about the assassination attempt on your life and Leah getting killed, I got things in order at home and purchased an airline ticket. I know Leah was a dear and true friend of yours. I grieve with you. Viera recomposed herself after a moment soaking up the comfort of her lifelong friend. She then swiped some tissues from the nearest side table. Thank you so much for coming. Please, come inside. Make yourself at home. Elisa gave her a loving squeeze on her shoulder, with sympathy still glistening in her large eyes. Don't mind if I do. It was a long flight, and I'm thankful your address hasn't changed. She retrieved her suitcase and raised an eyebrow at Lex Artman, who stood quietly off to the side. Who's this, Via? Oh, pardon me, Vera said as she dabbed away her tears and blew her nose. This is my bodyguard, Lex Artman. He is the man that saved my life outside the cinema. Elisa walked over and gave him a one-armed hug. Then I owe you a thank you, Lex Artman. It's nice to meet you. I was just doing my job, the bodyguard replied casually. Eliza gave him a friendly punch on his shoulder. A predictable response, but nonetheless likable. Then she glanced around the penthouse and gave Viera an impressed look. Dang, gal. Doing good for yourself. Her gaze went to the two plates on the kitchen bar and stopped. I hope I didn't interrupt your breakfast. Not at all. We had just finished, actually, Vera said. Elisa went over to the leftover food and closed her eyes as she put her nose over it. Oh, mind if I finish this? I'm famished. I ate my sack lunch before the flight, but once I landed, the airport food was outrageous. The exchange rate from Silvars to Centros jumped up recently. Would have cost me my taxi fare. The bodyguard gave a confused look and then waved at her to stop when she started scraping one plate onto another and settled herself in to start eating. No, no, please, the bodyguard interjected. No need to eat our leftovers. Let me fix you something. Elisa froze, and an embarrassed realization flashed across her face. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I hope that wasn't rude. Vera understood the Vilderkin mindset about food. Frugality towards life's necessities permeated her homeland, it still lingered as a ripple effect from the years of famine during the resistance against the Armipleb. The colonies had only recently started producing food in surplus these past two years. Even then, agricultural infrastructure was still lacking in areas to help spread the food across markets. Viera wrapped an arm around her friend and reassured her. Not at all. It's good to remember how much a blessing food is. My thought exactly. Elisa said as she ignored Mr. Artman's move into the kitchen and began forking the leftover food into her mouth. 
She took the plate with her as she explored the penthouse, admiring what she saw with protruding cheeks and widened gaze. She peeked inside Leah's old room as Viera retrieved her suitcase and said, I can put you in there. That was Leah's room. You'll have it all to yourself with your own bathroom. Elisa swallowed and glanced timidly at her. Stay in there alone, you mean? Is there not room in your bedroom? Viera paused. It hadn't been that long since she had lived in Vildrica to excuse her cultural forgetfulness. She used to share an old twin-size mattress on a concrete floor with her cousin when they were children, and then, just before she left Vildrica, they had upgraded to sharing a queen mattress on a metal frame and considered themselves to have slept in luxury. Now Viera was accustomed to sleeping alone on a king-sized mattress with silk sheets and a down comforter. She laughed quietly under her breath at how rude she must have come across. She knew better. It was regarded as a blessing to have family members to share a bed with in Vildrica. It also helped conserve warmth on cold nights. Pardon me, Viera said. There's more than room enough in my bedroom. Elisa brightened up. Oh, good, and resumed eating. She then peeked inside Lex Artman's room and turned to look at Viera, and then at her bodyguard. Her eyes widened ever so slightly. Mr. Artman's room, Viera explained. Mr. Lamore included him as a roommate in the allocated housing of my contract. Elisa scraped the last bit of breakfast into her mouth with her fork, raised an eyebrow, chewed thoughtfully for a minute, then teased. How very culturally flexible of you, Viera. Viera felt flustered. Even Lex Artman shifted uncomfortably where he stood. He spoke up. We're just roommates. I know. There's still propriety with separate rooms. Either way, just teasing. Elisa grinned and looked him in the eye. But I trust Via. She turned to Viera. All right, cousin. Show me where I'm sleeping. Once Viera closed her bedroom door behind them, it did not take Elisa long to unpack her modest belongings in Viera's walk-in closet. She then turned and said, Well, Via, how can I help you here? You're too kind, Viera said. Me? Psh. I'm just one among many people back home who are praying for you. No, I mean it, El. Thank you. You being here means so much to me. Not as much as you being here means to Vildrica, Via. I hope my awe of this place doesn't come across as judgment against you and the time you've spent here. You've been doing an awesome job funneling your monthly support from the militias to help foster good relations with the people of the Central Union. The governors have been getting weekly thank you letters from orphanages, veteran care facilities, and widows here in the Union. We know you've been giving generously from your own income, too, because the reported sum always adds up to more than you receive from back home. It's the least I can do, Vera said as she sat on the edge of her bed. And feel free to judge. It'll help keep me truthful. As you can see, I'm more than blessed. Elisa sat down next to her, sank into the down comforter, exclaimed, Oh my gosh, then flung herself backward. Okay, I'll judge you a little. Vera laughed. Fair enough. She felt Elisa's fingers run through her dark hair. Seriously, Via, what's going on here? How can I help? You've come at a perfect time. I made an agreement with a powerful aristocrat to go as his date to the Barbican annual royal fundraiser. In return, he will endorse a formal recognition of Vilderkin independence before the Queen. Elisa sat up with a jolt. Are you serious? This is exactly the kind of news Vilderka needs right now. What do you mean? Vera asked. Things aren't good in Vilderka. There were special agents caught and killed in the governor's house in Spartakea. There's evidence pointing to them being CSS. Then, word of the attempt made on your life reached us. Protesters went out into the streets, and the central common guardsmen that are stationed in the colonies met them in a show of force. A shootout occurred, leaving dead on both sides. Predictably, locals are refusing to turn over their own that engaged in the violence. 
It's like watching how things escalated with the Armapleb when we were kids all over again. Finding a flight to come here was a pain in the butt. The central airlines were canceling flights left and right to and from Vildrica. Going through customs took me a whole day. With how they vetted me, you would have thought I had a bomb on me. If not for you advocating for us back home, and if not for the feedback the governors have been getting from your efforts here, I'm not sure the colonies would have lasted this long. But via, time is running out. The militias are organizing and are on the move. People back home are watching now more than ever. If things don't improve soon between Vildrica and the Central Union, the Central Common Guardsmen stationed in the colonies won't be coming home to their families. Normally, Vera only learned bits and pieces of what was happening in Vildrica by either following obscure independent journalists or sifting through the rhetoric of the Central News Channel, but the situation was even worse than she had imagined. Anxiety grew exponentially within her as she listened to her cousin's plain report from back home. There was more need now than ever for her to be a peacemaker on Vildrica's behalf. Then, Vera stated, I know how you can help me these next few days, El. I could use your technological skills. It's common for attendees at the fundraiser to livestream the event for their followers. The news outlets here in the Union will provide commentary on these feeds, but I'll need you to set up my livestream for the fundraiser so that it feeds directly to Vildrica, raw and uncut by centralist commentary. Elisa smiled. Now we are talking via that I can do. Julia Weatherton With just a day before the fundraiser, Julia internalized the stress she felt over finding the void gown. Completing the mission for the royal crown was a desperate hope for her to get back into the CSS. But with each passing hour, she was feeling more desperate and less hopeful. Her insides felt tangled up in an ever-tightening knot. In the hopes of finding some kind of clue, she was poring over Prince Dashingson's known movements since the time the void gown went missing, and tried cross-comparing them with notable things found in police reports, surveillance footage, and news snippets. Nothing was coming to light. All she knew is that the prince had private interaction with the void gown shortly before it was noticed to be missing from the queen's personal safe. But the night he entered and left the fabulous royal palace, he did nothing more than go to the queen's bedchamber. Palace security stopped and searched him both at the palace entrance and outside the queen's bedchamber, twice, both as he came and went. None of it was making sense to Julia, and she had lost precious time due to a frustrating situation of misunderstanding between the CSS and the Royal Crown, which resulted in her and her partner being held in CSS custody. Her partner, Luke Stoneflex, hadn't been much help either. It wasn't his fault, though. Sir Aaron had immediately confined him to an accelerated healing tank after the beating he received while in custody. The precious time lost, wherein he could have been helping with the investigation, was devastating. With the cards stacked against her, how could she not feel embittered? Sir Aaron snored softly. The man sat at his desk with his head in his arms. Even he, with his overflowing confidence and overbearing optimism, was at his wit's end. In addition to searching for the void gown, he had been meeting with that obnoxious Vilderkin woman, Vera Sable, in the hopes of gleaming further insight into the prince's activities. His efforts had proved futile. At this point, Julia suspected the Vilderkin woman had beguiled Sir Aaron with her act of innocence. She had distracted him from being focused solely on the snake's head, Prince Dashingson. After all, the CSS had been using John Anvil to spy on Vera Sable with Operation Bodyguard, but to no avail. Did Sir Aaron think he was better than the whole agency that was the CSS? She rolled her eyes at her own thought. Probably. If the void gown and the smuggled arachnoplep were found before the fundraiser, Julia swore to herself that she was going to finish what she had attempted against the supermodel someday. Vieira Sable had been a continual source of annoyance for her. 
It boiled her blood that John Anvil was in constant proximity to that witch. The very thought made Julia despair, and what a reoccurring thought it was. It came then, with great shock, when she was interrupted from her work by her phone buzzing. It was from an unknown number and said, Jay, we need to talk. Meet me at Salty Pop's sub shop, not far from you. Don't tell anyone. Come alone. Jay. The moment she exited out from reading the message, it deleted itself from her inbox. She knew who it was from. None other than John Anvil himself. Her stomach felt so tight now that she thought she might throw up. His message could not have come at a worse moment. So, she took a deep breath and thought, Screw it! as she pushed away from her investigation. She had been at it since 3 a.m. that morning and needed a break anyway. Might as well see what her ex wanted. Sir Aaron stirred from his nap and blinked wearily at her as she grabbed her car keys. Before he had time to ask, she said over her shoulder, I'm going to get some lunch. She drove to the sandwich shop, which was not far, and got a ham and turkey with extra meat and cheese, two bags of potato chips, because why not, and a large starlight drink. The backside of the restaurant had a quiet and private place to sit, where she relaxed by herself. She began eating her meal slowly. She took time to practice some breathing exercises in between bites to help calm her nerves. It helped a little to stomach the food. But she almost choked when she looked up to see John Anvil come around the corner saying, Well, well, well. Glad to see you chose to come. He held his sandwich, chips, and a bottled soda with a faint smile. He looked stupid and handsome all at the same time. His recent unexpected reemergence in her life was starting to get old, but she also wanted it to continue. Mind if I join you? He said without waiting for an answer and took the seat across from her. He set out his meal, glanced several times over his shoulder, and twisted the cap off his bottled soda. The drink hissed. What are we doing here, John? Just getting lunch, Julia. I swear, I just want to talk. I'm flattered, she said with a sarcastic tone. But aren't you supposed to be stalking a certain gaudy supermodel? He smiled. Yeah, I am, then added with an icy tone. But I know she's safe, since you're here with me. Julia felt his retort in her gut. I was just following orders, she muttered defensively. As am I, he said, being the bodyguard of a supermodel. Jealousy burned hot in Julia's chest. I'm sure the job comes with at least two perky incentives. He let out a chuckle of exasperation as he unwrapped his meal. Julia could have guessed his order before seeing it. A meatball sub with extra cheddar chips and ye ol' earthkin sassafras beer. He said, Is this really what you want to talk about, Julia? Petty implications against me? Because I can entertain you for a minute and do the same thing right back at you about that egotistical sir prick. Then he took a bite of his sandwich. Julia scoffed. Ha! Ha! You being around that Vilderkin slut and me working alongside the public relations officer of the royal crown isn't even close to the same thing. He just smiled as he chewed, took a swig of his drink and said, You know what? You're right. Being caught naked together in a pool with Sir Prick sounds way worse. His insulting use of Sir Aaron's name actually amused Julia, but she expressed being humored with a derisive snort. Before she could respond, however, he asked nonchalantly, How is it, working for Sir Prick? Great, she replied dryly. The royal crown really knows how to motivate new employees. But you already know that we sip champagne and go skinny dipping all day. What more is there to say? She asked defiantly before she took several big gulps from her drink. He waited for her to finish, then asked, Julia, why are you working for Sir Aaron? Why do you think? Julia sneered. He answered matter-of-factly. You want to get back into the CSS? See, is it really that difficult? 
not for me to say the answer, but difficult for you to accomplish with how you're doing it. Wow, easy for you to say after the CSS hindered me for a week in custody. Your new assignment must be easy for you to have the free time just to come here and discourage me. Julia opened her second bag of chips a little too violently. Several chips flew from the bag and landed across the table. John picked one up and popped it in his mouth. No, Julia, that's not at all what I'm trying to do. She glowered at him. Then what do you want, John? He sighed, and his confidence wavered. He sank deeper into his chair and glanced over his shoulder. When he looked back at her, there was something like sadness or fear or both, on his face. Like I said, I just want to talk, Julia. That's it. Just talk. You and me. There's no one I can... I don't know. Truth is, I'm struggling with my assignment. It's been one of the most difficult for me. I'm supposed to get close to Vieira. This includes, if possible, seduction. There was a moment last night. Julia froze with torn chip bag in hand, the contents of which continued to fall one after another onto the table, but she didn't notice and neither did he as he continued. She was drinking. I slipped a trace amount of relaxedacy in her glass to aid the alcohol in loosening her up. She undressed down to her undergarments. We started kissing, but I choked. I froze up. I think Viera sensed it because she shut down and fled to her bedroom, but I... I can't get the look of her face out of my mind. You know what she did first thing this morning? She eyed him warily. What did she do? She apologized, Julia. She apologized to me, because to use her own words, she put us in a compromising situation. Julia couldn't help herself. She laughed and quipped smartly. Sounds like you goofed up, John. You had her right where you needed her, and you goofed up. You don't understand, Julia. I think there's more to this assignment. I think the superiors are testing me, and I... He glanced over his shoulder and stopped talking. Not because anyone was there, but because he looked as if there was. Julia eyed her ex warily. He was hiding something. Something big. She could tell that much. What are you talking about, John? He strummed his fingertips on the table for a few seconds, then looked her dead in the eye and said, Julia, I love you. That's why I choked up with Vera. That's why I froze. His words, emphasized by the intense gaze of his ocean blue eyes, struck her straight in the chest. There was a tremble in her response. I've heard that from you before. It resulted in me losing my job, remember? You ratted us out to our superiors, and because you snitched and came clean, you got to be the one to keep your job. He kept eye contact with her and stated, I'm as honest saying it to you today as I was then, Julia. You impress me. You dumbfound me. You are lethal, ambitious, always improving, obedient to orders, but... You had a fault. You were double-minded in your service to the agency. Julia let her bitterness leak. Double-minded? Okay, sure, because of you. No, John said gently. Our relationship is not why you were demoted, Julia. Sure, when our superiors found out, it was a convenient explanation to put on paper. For me, the most difficult part, though, was watching you go and seeing how you believed it. You were let go because you were not devoted to the dynamic truth of the CSS. Instead, you were devoted to the textbook definition. You follow the rules, Julia. You always follow the rules. But your greatest strength is your greatest weakness. You never stop to question the rules. You never stop to question exactly who writes them and why. Anger boiled up inside of her. How dare this man, of all people, lecture her about double-mindedness and devotion and never stopping to question rules. 
She wanted to slap him from across the table, but her time in the CSS helped her control her emotion and convert it to passive aggression. She glanced at the time. Okay, whatever you say, but unlike you, I don't have time to dwell on our past. Our present is enough for me. I'm focused on finding the void gown. I need to locate where Prince Dashingson is keeping it, and I don't have long. She made to get up, but in a blink, John's arm shot across the table and held her down by the shoulder. The muscles on his forearm tightened. She could feel the strength of his grip as his fingers pressed into her skin, but most disturbing was the desperation in his voice. Julia, please, you're not listening. Just stay a few more minutes. She prepared herself to fight him right then and there, in the backside of the restaurant. It would no longer be a quiet spot if the two of them got started, but she did not care. She only held back to ask a single question. Is this, she glanced at his hold, you asking me to stay, or telling me? He let go immediately, and raised open palms. I know my recent interactions with you have probably conveyed the opposite of how I truly feel. But the truth is, I am afraid for you. When you were demoted from the agency and transferred to the Dinor Department of Law Enforcement, it was by my request. Her jaw dropped, but he did not give her time to respond. I just meant it to be a temporary thing. It would not have lasted longer than a few more days from now. But then Sir Aaron Roseprick came along unexpectedly and jeopardized you. Ever since I realized you were working for the Royal Crown, I've been tormented by fear. I talked to the superiors, and when they found you in Fovor, they tried buying you more time by holding you in custody for as long as they could. You're a long-term asset to them, Julia, just as you are to me. But I'm afraid. I know how good you are at what you do. So just... All I need right now is reassurance from you. Julia struggled making sense of what he was saying. What do you mean, John? What are you trying to tell me? Sir Roseprick said you and Stoneflex were independent contractors. The Royal Crown only engages in independent contracting for very specific short-term contracts. So tell me, does finding the Void Gown satisfy your contract with the Royal Crown? She hesitated. Yes. Your contract does not specify hunting down the smuggled arachnopleb? No, not technically. We only pursued the smuggled arachnopleb because we believed they might lead to the gown. John bit his lower lip. If, if you found the void gown, would you promise me to immediately cease working for the royal crown? Suspicion began to sour Julia's stomach. John's ambiguity filled her with dread. It was only leading to more questions. She uttered the first one that came to mind. But what about finding the smuggled arachnopleb, John? The CSS will find them. You know that, Julia. Just promise me. Promise me that you would cease working for the royal crown if you found the void gown. I'm not asking for you to trust me. I'm asking for you to let me trust you. Do this for me, please. Promise. His ambiguity troubled her deeply, but the tone of pleading in his voice and the urgency in his eyes appealed to the feelings she still had for him. She squirmed in her seat and looked all around the room, except at him. She felt torn. She knew there was a deeper meaning behind what he was asking, and it felt as if it did not bode well. On the other hand, she still loved this man. She knew that too, and said softly, I promise, John. He said, Thank you, before he breathed a sigh of relief and slid a folded napkin in front of her. She opened it and saw a message, scribbled in ink, Legiokin Securities and Firewall Services. BXHAS-36SS. This was the name of an obscure bank in the south of the Central Union run by Legiokin that was at times used by the CSS to put key intelligence on ice 
until an appropriate time. The number would then belong to an account, but the bank specialized not in monetary transactions or hard asset storage, but in what was termed sensitive information preordination. Thus, access was only granted in person. She looked up to ask John about it, but all she saw was his back as he left. Luke Stoneflex Luke Stoneflex had enough of being in the accelerated healing tank. The beating he had received from being in CSS custody, in his opinion, had been overly exaggerated. Sure, the swelling in his face had been bad enough to nearly blind him and make his speech almost unintelligible. His sprained joints and aching body had made him feel all locked up. But being naked and submerged in the hot, slimy medicinal goo while the medical staff eyed him through the glass like some zoo exhibit to him felt far worse than what he had endured by resisting those CSS dweebs. If it had not been for his minor physical setbacks, Sir Aaron would not have been able to lead him like some unsuspecting dog to a vet clinic. Plus, after almost a full day of being in the goo, he wasn't sure the exact time, to him it felt like a week, the swelling had diminished to the point he could see clearly again, and although there was still stiffness to his joints, the aching he felt was nothing. To him, it was not much worse than post-combat fatigue. So, he pulled the medical tubing from his veins, spat out the rubber air tube, and emerged from the accelerated healing tank with thick globs of goo dripping off him. Warning pings blared from the healing tank, which caused every medical brainiac in the room to turn towards him. They all rushed forward, raising a fuckus. What do you think you're doing? One of the doctors nagged. At the same time, another one cried out. Did I not say we should have put restraints in the tank with him? Oh, shut up. I've got a job to get back to, he said as he waved an arm at them and splattered those closest to him. This isn't my first baptism of humiliation, and I feel fine now. You feel fine, the lead doctor scoffed. Your matching black eyes look healthy in comparison to the rest of your body. Within such a short time, the gel in your tank has gained a purple hue, simply due to the amount of damaged capillaries it has replenished. Another medical personnel quipped. He's probably suffering from minor delusion caused by the head trauma he received. We should have paid closer attention to the progress of reduction in anterior swelling. A third one moved towards him with syringe in hand. I'll sedate him. Luke turned towards the scrawny man, looked down at him, and said, Go ahead. Try it. The man leered up at Luke's massive upper body and watched a network of veins blossom across gigantic muscles that tensed in anticipation of being used. Huge pecs, slick and glistening from the tank, twitched at the level of his eye. He lowered the syringe, backed up, and croaked. Someone call security. Luke rolled his eyes. They're not going to stop me, the man added, and tell them to bring an extra-large restraining jacket. Luke growled in annoyance, but before he could respond, a familiar voice came from the back of the room. Let him go. You're not going to stop him, and if you continue as so, you're quickly going to fill up all your healing tanks with your own security staff. Looking over the group of medical personnel, Luke saw his partner, Julia Weatherton, leaning in the doorway to the room. The lead doctor turned towards her and said, We need proper authorization to release this man before he reaches a stage of recovery that we deem satisfactory to do so. If you can provide us with that, we will eagerly transfer the well-being of this patient into your care. Of course, doctor. Painful is the prick of the rose. Need I say more? The doctor sighed with what sounded like relief. No, you need not. Then he turned to Luke and said, Mr. Stoneflex, you are free to go. Thanks, Luke grunted a short time later as he walked down the hallway with Julia. He felt relieved to be dry and wearing his own equipment again. I'm not gonna lie. I'm surprised that Sir Aaron is okay with letting me out this early. Julia glanced up at him. I don't know if he is okay with it. You still look like a plum that fell from the top of the tree and hit every branch on its way down. But he understands you, and he wants you to come with me. 
Oh, yeah? Where are we going? To check out a bank in Laboxo. Laboxo? Luke asked, surprised. The Laboxo? As in, the Legiokin city way down south in Gravam? Yes. What's in the bank that's worth an eight-hour flight? A lead that my ex in the CSS gave me, if you can even call it that. For me, it feels more like a hunch, but it's all we've got right now for finding the void gown, and our time is running out before the fundraiser. Luke stopped walking and grinned at Julia. Wow. She noticed, turned on her heels, and asked defensively, What? You, of all people, going off a hunch, and based on the word of an ex... I'm impressed, Weatherton. She rolled her eyes and continued walking, and he followed. Roughly eight hours later, the aircraft shuddered as it ceased riding the stormy winds and touched down on the landing pad. Luke Stoneflex unbuckled, got up from his seat, and unsealed the door. With wobbly legs, he stepped into the rain outside. He felt unbalanced from the turbulent flight, and took a moment to let his equilibrium readjust to being back on solid ground. At the same time, he surveyed his surroundings. They had definitely landed on, not necessarily in, a Legiokin city. The city was a single superstructure that resembled an old-fashioned Earthkin oil rig, except much larger, and the structure didn't tower above water, but towered above land. This superstructure housed all the amenities and services any city would, except that everything was crammed together in the same packaged community. This made it easier for the Legiokin to devote themselves to their obsession with scientific research and mechanical tinkering. Their laboratories and research facilities were often just a hallway down from their very homes and social hubs. To the Legiokin, life was their work, and their work was life. What struck Luke was that there was not a single Legiokin in sight, not even an air traffic crew to welcome them or check them in. Geez, this place is as lively as a cemetery, Luke remarked. You better not let a Legiokin hear you say that, Julia quipped as she stumbled out of the aircraft, looking a little green. Their cities are doomed to become cemeteries, if their race doesn't start reproducing faster than they're dying off. Lightning flashed in the stormy sky and revealed for a moment the rolling grassy hills of Gravam around them. Pristine, untouched nature, glossy wet beneath the dark sky. It contrasted in comparison to the sterile, steel-colored structure that was slick beneath their feet. Not far from them, directly ahead of the landing pad, was an illuminated sign, Legiokin Securities and Firewall Services, and an elevator beneath it. Convenience entry for banking. Oh, mercy. Thank you, centralism, for having an influence on the Legiokin city designs, Julia exclaimed when she saw the sign. That just saved us four hours of trying to navigate our way through the usual infatuation for labyrinths among Legiokin city planners. She led the way to the elevator and pressed the call button. The elevator hummed, then opened with a ding. As Luke followed Julia into the elevator, it creaked and dropped an inch. He could hear the straining of metal cords in the elevator shaft as the glass doors hissed shut. This convenience entry did not seem like it was often used. Hey, Weatherton, Luke said. Yes, Julia asked, glancing only briefly up at him. You okay? She answered quickly. Yeah, why? I don't know. I guess... It's just, you haven't talked much since we left Tavor. She flashed a weak grin. And what, during our time working together, has given you the impression that I'm the talkative type? Talkative, no, he conceded. But, confident, yes, even to the point of arrogance and narrow-mindedness. And yet, today, you seem lacking in your usual confidence. You seem battered, worn down, weak. Okay, fine. I'm, she said faintly, hopeful this lead proves helpful, but knowing who it comes from, I'm disturbed by it. You know how it can be with exes, I'm sure. Uh, he shrugged.
Not really. I don't have any exes. Julia gave him a questioning brow, but did not say anything more. The ride down was long in the awkward silence that followed. They passed through the numerous levels of the city, saw a glimpse of the city's underbelly and the monolithic columns that supported the superstructure, then they went underground, deeper and deeper, for a tediously long while. Luke let out a faint huff and started tapping his foot impatiently. When at last the elevator dinged and the doors opened, the two of them stepped out into a small, blindingly white lobby. Everything was white. The ceiling was white. The floors were white. Even the seating and side tables were white. The only thing that wasn't white, which stood out like an eyesore, was a sparkly purple robot. What the? Luke trailed off before finishing his bewilderment. The robot was designed to resemble a voluptuous Barbican woman, but what was intended to be a sexy model turned out to be a grotesque mechanical monstrosity. Just seeing its football-sized eyes, softball lips, missile-shaped chest, beach ball butt, frying pan hips, and stork legs gave Luke the sudden urge to destroy it. Julia, meanwhile, eyed the robot with a disgusted sneer. Oh no, they did not. The Legio can need to go outside their labs more if they think Barbican women look like that. Welcome. I am Te'el of the Barbabot model. Please note that this interaction may be recorded for quality assurance purposes. How can I be of service? You can start by getting yourself serviced, Luke commented. You need to go in for a redesign. I am sorry to hear about your dissatisfaction. We at Legio Kin Securities and Firewall Services take our clientele feedback very seriously. Your comment has been logged and will be processed for service review. Otherwise, how can I be of service? He elbowed Julia. She snapped out of her sneer and interjected. We would like to access account BXHAS-36SS to make an information inquiry. The robot swerved its head to focus on Julia. Of course. May I have your access credentials, please? She pulled out a card and said, Open an information inquiry into that account now, you rusty perversion of womanhood, or I'm going to find out who your maker is and have them sued for sexism and a racial stereotype. I am sorry to hear about your dissatisfaction. We at Legiokin just scanned the card already. Seriously. Scanning. Processing authority override. Painful is the prick of the rose. Emergency royal crown override authenticated. Welcome, privileged servant to the crown. Access to account BXHAS-36SS. Granted. How may I service this account for you? Julia sighed shook her head and muttered, Robots, before saying, Open an information inquiry. I am sorry, information inquiry unavailable for hard asset accounts. Julia looked at the robot with disbelief, then exclaimed, Wait, what? Raising volume level now, the robot replied before repeating, I am sorry, information inquiry unavailable for hard asset accounts. Luke, however, felt his own ignorance in the moment. What's going on? Julia explained. This is strictly an information bank. They should not have monetary or hard asset accounts. It's not legal. The robot processed what she said and interjected. Pardon me, but I assure you this facility is in full compliance with the law. Account BXHAS-36SS falls under... Luke couldn't help snorting, but Julia did not look amused. Oh, shut up, you stupid bot! Just open the account already! Asset withdrawal processing. Please follow me. The robot strut to the back wall of the lobby, its mottled hips swinging in such a mechanically awkward, programmed fashion that it made Luke laugh under his breath. Whoever had designed this robot had roundaboutly accomplished what they had intended because it comedically captured his attention. The robot placed both hands on the wall, 
stuck its rear end out in what was supposed to be a provocative pose, but actually came across as if it was about to pop a panel and crap out a load of internal wiring. Then it said, Opening for you now, and moaned robotically as an added touch. Luke could contain himself no longer and burst into laughter. Even Julia shook her head and snickered. With a sudden pop, the room began to tremble. A seam appeared in the middle of the wall, and the whole thing slid away on either side to reveal the large door of a safe. The robot approached the safe and placed its hand on the door. The safe hissed. The door swung open, and a cold cloud of refrigerator fog billowed out into the room. With cautious curiosity, Julia approached the safe and disappeared in the fog as she entered. There was a moment of silence. Luke peered inside and saw Julia's silhouette. She was stooped over something. Then there was the noise of something shutting, followed by her scream. For a second, Luke's heart raced until he realized her scream was not one of pain or terror, but excitement. She emerged from the fog, clutching a metal case in her arms and wearing an expression of disbelief. She croaked in shock. We, we did it. We found the void gown. It's here. It's right here. It's about freaking time, Luke grumbled. Now that we've found the fancy underwear, can we get back to the real issue of hunting down the arachnopleb? First, Julia turned to the robot. Her look of shock transformed into one of suspicion as she asked, Enlighten me. How is this account legal? Certainly. Account BXHAS-36SS exists under Legiokin Research and Data Processing Exemption Clause 9.4-487-8.1BX Signed into law by Queen Fabulously Supreme Stella Barbrius Lindidia Volgorgias in the Central Special Services Establishment Act of 22001. Would you like to know more? That would mean, Julia pondered aloud, the CSS is permitted to store hard assets in information banks, provided it has to do with preserving information essential to Legiokin research. That is correct. She continued her train of thought. This was the perfect hiding spot, a bank that no one would think is actually being used as a traditional bank. Julia prodded the robot for more. Identify the last person that accessed this account. Processing. Please wait. Last person to access this account was you. Time stamped 10.44 p.m. on 6-28-22006. She shook her head. That's not what I mean. Was Prince Lordly Dashingson the last person to access this account before me? Processing. Please wait. Negative. The most recent activity for this account occurred with CSS authorization by Agent John Anvil. Wait, Luke turned to Julia. Isn't he? Yes, he is, she said. Her face was pale. And it confirms my suspicion ever since he gave me this lead. We've been chasing after the wrong suspect. Prince Dashingson never stole the void gown, or at least not without help. I think the CSS was somehow involved. So concludes this episode of the Kirkwood Chronicles, written and read by me, Nathaniel Thompson. Musical introduction by Luke Thompson. Please follow along in episode 11 for the continuation of the story. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, be sure to like and subscribe. Also, for concept art and news about the podcast, be sure to follow this work on Instagram at the Kirkwood Chronicles. Thank you for listening, and may God bless your day.